Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Adam Blattenberg from Diesel World. Hi, this is Dan, owner of Dan's Diesel Performance. I'm Christian Roth of BD Diesel. I'm Braden Fleece, and you're listening to the Diesel Podcast. What is going on, Diesel Nation? We're excited to have you guys with us today on the Diesel Podcast. Today, I'm going to be joined by Stuart Cables. He's a lawyer who's been on the podcast before to answer emissions questions that we've had um, to talk about the EPA Clean Air Act. Well, today, he's going to chat with us about the recent Supreme Court ruling in West Virginia versus EPA and give us an overview of it. Let us know, does it affect diesel? Does it affect the RPM Act? What can we do with our trucks? Did it change anything at all? Did it change um, you know, nothing? What exactly does it mean for us? So he's gonna answer those questions for, um, for us today. Before we get to it though, we wanna remind you guys, you can get 20% off site-wide at kershaw.kiausa.com. We got a ton of different knife products uh, for the outdoors, fishing, hunting, everyday carry. There's a, a lot of uh, really cool things that they have. No matter what kind of lifestyle you have, what your budget is, if you use that code, you get 20% off. And you know we've had Kershaw on several times to chat with us about their product line, their focus as it pertains to making quality knives for a ton of different uses. So if you're in the market for something, make sure and use that code, get 20% off, and save a little bit of money. All right, let's get to today's episode with Stuart Cables and chatting about the recent Supreme Court ruling. Stuart, welcome back to the Diesel Podcast. I always enjoy our chats. They're very informative, and uh, I know a lot of people in the diesel automotive industry rely on you, including myself, to get information and make sense of what is going on with uh, you know, these vehicles that we love and and what's uh, taking place in, in the court. So I appreciate your time today. Yeah, uh, happy to be back on the podcast, Patrick. It's always a pleasure. Um, I'm always happy to come on and talk to you about the legal implications of what the EPA is doing and what the uh, various different changes to the law or, uh, mean when it comes to affecting the industry. So I'm happy to be back. I think the big thing this summer was a ruling with the EPA that the Supreme Court did. And I know it was sandwiched in between a couple other things that I think had bigger headlines, but for us in the automotive side, it seemed huge. So I wanted to ask you in, in, if you could give us just a general kind of summary of what was the case of West Virginia versus EPA? What were they arguing? What, why did it rise to the level of the Supreme Court having to rule on it? Yeah. Um, so uh, that's a great question. Obviously something that uh, anything that pertains to the EPA, I think is going to be something that is potentially relevant to our industry considering that the EPA is in charge of enforcing the Clean Air Act and the other environmental laws, at least on a federal level. And so um, the 
the West Virginia versus EPA case is a uh, case that made it to the Supreme Court because of this idea of what it is that a federal agency can and cannot do or should or shouldn't be able to do. And the way that it started was that under the Obama administration, the uh, administration itself created some rules. They what's called promulgated a rule under the clean under the Clean Air Act, and the, this is related to the Clean Power Plan, which had the goal. The rule had the goal of reducing carbon emissions in the U.S. And this has been a big fight, you know, um, what uh, what can we do to reduce carbon emissions? Do carbon emissions make a big make make a big difference? You know, there's a lot of different conflicting science and conflicting ideas. But the general idea was we want to reduce pollution, which I think everybody can agree is a good thing, uh, no matter what. And so the clean power plan rule that the uh, Obama administration promulgated um, was a rule that was designed to reduce emissions from coal-fired power plants. And coal-fired power plants are notoriously dirty uh, way to generate energy. Um, there's cleaner power plants, coal, coal plants, there's dirtier, dirtier coal plants, there's an entire industry that's related to coal-fired you know, energy in the U.S. And the you know the ultimate goal was to reduce the carbon emissions but what the obama administration did at least in this specific circumstance was they created this plan that had three separate rules as a part of it the first measure that they that that they undertook the first portion of the clean power plan was a portion that was designed to improve the technological improvements that helped coal plants produce cleaner energy. Okay. So, you know, various different technologies that you can scrub the coal, you can do all these different things to make the, the emissions lower, make the, make the air pollution go down. The second part of the clean power plan was involved, was a lot more uh, invasive, we'll call it, and that, that portion of the Clean Power Plan involved a mandatory shift in generation of power production away from coal itself, the energy, uh, the energy producing coal that, that we all think of, and move it in the direction of natural gas because natural gas burns cleaner and there's less technological advances that are required to make natural gas produce less emissions than coal. The third portion of the clean power plan was similar to the second measure, except the shift in from coal-fired power was not to natural gas, it was to clean energy. So wind energy, solar energy, water, you know, things like that. And so generally speaking, the clean power plan that was created by the Obama administration had this overarching, very broad goal of reducing emissions. But in order to achieve those emissions, it created all these incentives to move away from coal altogether 
and instead use these different energy sources that burn cleaner, okay? So if you wanted, if you own a coal plant and you want to uh, shift according to the law, the or excuse me, the rule that the Obama administration made, you could reduce your plant's production of electricity, you could build or invest in a new natural gas plant instead of using coal, which obviously doesn't make any sense if you're in a coal producing state like yeah. uh, West Virginia or Pennsylvania or, you know, anywhere in the, we call it the rust belt, but that's not necessarily a, a PC term. Um, those types of areas of the country they don't necessarily have natural gas the same way that they have coal. So what this law did was it essentially shut down or vastly reduced the coal mining in those areas, and it caused a shift towards natural gas or other clean energies. And the states that rely on the income from those power sources, or they rely on the energy that is actually produced by coal, they took offense to this rule and they decided that they were going to file a lawsuit. And the lawsuit was joined by 14 states. West Virginia was the headliner. And the general gist of the lawsuit was, hey, federal government, you're not allowed to create a rule that seeks to prevent a certain thing from happening unless the law that's been written by the federal government or various state government, but in this case, specifically the federal government, unless that law says specifically that you are allowed to restrict the operations of a coal plant or whatever industry you're in. Okay. And the general theme of this lawsuit was that if you are going to make a rule as the federal government, your rule must be specifically provided for in legislation. It has to be written out. Okay. So um, the effect of the clean power plan rule was that it was essentially making coal obsolete not driven by market forces, not driven by the increased cost of coal or the increased uh, inefficiency of uh, efficiency of natural gas and clean power as opposed to the decreased efficiency of coal. The federal government stepped in and they said, you cannot have a coal-fired power plant because it produces too much emissions. And so you have got to change the type of power that you make. And when that happened, as Americans, we are all very hesitant to listen to the federal government tell us what we can and can't do, or we should be, at least. And the states that rely on this coal power, they stepped in and they said, no, you're not allowed to tell us that we can't use coal. You have to legislate, you have to create a law that says that the carbon emissions cannot exceed a certain threshold in order to actually prevent us from making coal. You can't just make a rule that says that you're not allowed to use coal anymore, or you're, you're not allowed to have a power plant that produces a certain number of emissions. 
So this went all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, so the EPA had a defense to the state's claims. And their defense was that the Clean Air Act or the Clean Air Act uh, Section 111 of the Clean Air Act provides that the EPA is permitted to regulate certain pollution uh, or pollutants from existing sources of pollution like power plants. And therefore they were within their rights to create this rule, the clean power plan that basically kneecapped the coal industry, okay? So ultimately this made it all the way to the Supreme Court. And, you know, I think that the reason that it made it to the Supreme Court is because we're talking about 14 states uh, with yeah. a energy with an energy needs and and in industry an entire important industry that's surrounded by these energy needs and ultimately the Supreme Court made a ruling and their ruling was and I'm gonna make a caveat here okay I'm not a constitutional lawyer and I am a you know, I'm not a, a Supreme Court specialist. So my interpretation of this case on on its very basic level is exactly that. It's, you know, whether or not I think it applies. There could be some things in here I missed. Uh, I don't think that I'm going to miss any of the broad strokes of the case. But, you know, these these cases tend to get very complicated. And this was like a 90-page a opinion. It was a pretty significant opinion. So anyway, the Justice Roberts... Uh, who's the chief judge, issued the opinion. And what he said was that of our initial three portions of the clean power plan, one of them was constitutional and two of them were not. And the one that was constitutional was the EPA's efforts to improve technological requirements for coal-fired power plants to make cleaner energy as opposed to just letting them use whatever technology that they had in place. They said that that was constitutional. The other two, though, the more important ones where you were required, you meaning a coal plant was required to either move to natural gas, reduce production in order to meet this, this pollution threshold, or move to clean energy, those requirements were not constitutional. And the reason that they were not constitutional was because Congress did not grant the EPA in section 111D of the Clean Air Act, the authority to devise emission caps based on a generation shifting approach that the agency took. And when I say generation shifting, what I mean is the type of energy generation, you know, newer energy models are going to be more efficient. Older energy models are going to be less efficient for a variety of reasons. Okay. And the EPA's effort to regulate greenhouse gases by making industry-wide changes violated what's called the major questions doctrine, which says that if Congress wants to give an administrative agency the power 
to make decisions of vast economic and political significance, it must say so clearly. It must directly, Congress must directly state we are giving the EPA this authority, or it doesn't have to be the EPA. We are giving the Department of Defense this authority. We are giving the Department of Agriculture this authority. Whatever the authority is, if they're making these huge decisions that affect industry and commerce and all these other really important economic and political decisions or or aspects of American life, you've got to do it specifically. You can't say, hey, we're just going to make this rule and everybody has to follow it. Okay. So Roberts in his decision points out that Congress has rejected the enactment of similar programs like the Clean Power Plan. So there's a big portion of what the Supreme Court decides, which is based on what Congress has considered of what they've done in the past. And if and a political administration or a, a political party, call it, wants to make rules related to anything, in this case, it's climate change, they usually try to introduce a bill. Yeah. And when they try to introduce a bill to say, we want to deal with clean, or excuse me, we want to, we want to enact a bill that regulates the coal industry, for example, then if that's not agreed to by Congress, if it doesn't turn, if it doesn't pass into a law, then the American people, their representatives who are in Congress have decided that that's not what they want. So what Justice Roberts did was he went back and he looked at similar bills or the Supreme Court, but Justice Roberts in his decision went back and he looked at similar bills and similar laws that our Congress people had attempted to pass. And he said, the Congress already agreed for better or worse that they didn't want a law that said this. So the Obama administration or the Trump administration or the Biden administration or any, any administration can't just come in and say, we're going to do it anyway. That's a violation of the checks and balances that we have in place, which is what makes us America, right? So the energy industry qualifies as one of these, these industries of vast political and uh, economic importance, okay? And so this is kind of where we get into the application to the diesel industry, right? Yeah. Is, or where we can at least start to transition into that conversation. And Patrick, you sent me a list of questions before the podcast. I'm just kind of giving the, the broad strokes here, and then I'll talk about the application of the diesel industry, and then we can go through any of those questions, and you can ask them to me, and we can figure out if I missed any or if there's any that we didn't talk about. Um, but I would argue that the diesel industry is an industry that has vast economic and political significance in general. 
And the reason I would argue that is because the diesel industry is, you know, the industry that powers the commerce, the interstate commerce that we have in the U.S. We put almost everything that we ship domestically onto 18-wheel trucks, and we pass them from state to state, and they do deliveries, everything from our produce to our electronics to any product you can imagine, okay? So all of these trucks that we have that are going from state to state that are powered by diesel motors greatly impact the uh, commerce and the politics and everything associated with it that we have in the US. But there's a problem with the application of West Virginia versus the United States to our industry. And that problem is that Section 111D, which is the section of the Clean Air Act that the Obama administration used to make these very serious uh, legal changes, this very, very important, uh, powerful rule, it doesn't apply to our industry. And the reason is because there's another section of the Clean Air Act that applies to the diesel industry. And that section is uh, the emission standards for moving sources section, Clean Air Act 7521 to 7590. Okay. So what the federal government did when they created the Clean Air Act back in the 60s and edited and modified and changed it over the course of time is they created a section of the Clean Air Act that specifically applied to mobile sources, whether they're gas, airlines, diesel, trains, whatever, whatever, you know, moves, right? Mobile sources. And in this section, there is a clear and express grant of authority to regulate those mobile sources and the emissions that come from those mobile sources. So the, the section that we have in the Clean Air Act that applies to us in the diesel world is extremely clear. And it has always been illegal, at least since the, the implementation, the creation of the Clean Air Act, to tamper with, disable, or otherwise remove emissions controls from vehicles. Okay. Or stationary sources for that matter, but we're not talking about stationary sources. Okay. So this is express authority that was granted by Congress to regulate mobile sources such as trucks, right? right. And the authority that was granted by the Clean Air Act to the federal government and is being exercised by the EPA also provides the authority for penalties, either civil penalties or criminal penalties, if you violate the Clean Air Act. So this thing that Congress didn't do in, or excuse me, the Obama administration didn't have and that Congress didn't do, which is, is create the express authority to regulate carbon emissions in a certain industry, they actually did it for diesels. 
and gas motors and anything that moves. Gotcha. Okay. So this portion of our West Virginia decision that most clearly and directly applies to diesel, to mobile sources and the diesel industry is actually most analogous to the technological requirements that the Supreme Court actually upheld as legal and constitutional. So even though everybody in our industry, or maybe not everybody, but most people in our industry love to see the EPA get, you know, smacked around a little bit by the Supreme Court, or they love to see the authority be drawn back or restricted a little bit. Unfortunately, it's not going to be applicable to any cases in our industry that would apply to the tampering with, removal of, or or defeat of emission controls, because Congress already said, hey, you can't do that. Okay. Now, there's another case that's probably more important to the diesel world. Well, it's not probably, it is definitively more important to the diesel industry. And that case was decided by the chief administrative judge out of DC. Uh, and that's the, U, uh, the US versus Borla exhaust case. And in that case, probably about three months ago, maybe a little bit longer, the chief administrative judge issued about a 75 page order that addressed a lot of the arguments that we in the industry have been making over the course of time related to um, related to mobile sources and defeating emissions, the racing industry in particular. And I would encourage, we can do a that's itself an entirely different podcast. Um, but, you know, we can, I would encourage your listeners to look up the Borla decision because basically what it says is that the racers that have been saying that, you know, the racing industry is going to be destroyed in the U.S. if the EPA is, is allowed to continue on the path they're, they're going down and, you know, we are, there have to be circumstances where we can remove the emissions from our vehicles. The Borla decision basically says any vehicle that originally had a certification from the EPA to sell as a vehicle to be used on the highway is designated that way for life. And you can create a vehicle with, you can create a race vehicle, but if that race vehicle is based on a vehicle that originally had a certification from the EPA, then enforcement is possible, okay? That, that is not a legal vehicle to drive on the road, okay? And it's not even a legal vehicle to turn into a race vehicle, but- the Borla exhaust ruling does not go as far as to say that if you have a vehicle, a race vehicle that is based on one of those original uh, uh, certified cars or trucks, if you don't have one of those and you've been racing it, 
the EPA is not really after you. They're not after the end users. They even argued in their brief to the to the chief judge, the chief administrative judge, they're not really after those guys, which is most of us, right? I mean, most yeah. people are not manufacturing or creating these parts. Most people are racing, right? And so the focus of the Borla case is really, I mean, there's lots to unpack in there, but the focus of the Borla case is really to say, if you're in trouble with the EPA for removing efficient, removing emissions, you are going to be in trouble if you're manufacturing parts or you're doing it in order to sell them. We're not really going to come after you if you're actually racing the vehicle, but just be aware that there could be a lot fewer of these parts around because the manufacturers are not allowed to do it. Okay. okay? So anyway, like I said, we can talk more about Borla if you want to do a separate podcast. That's not really why we're here today. And we probably don't have enough time, but that was a recent decision that actually applied to our industry. And it's also a recent decision that could be appealed to the U S Supreme court. And one of the things that that, decision said was you and I have talked about the RPM Act yeah. on your podcast before. If you want to be able to race vehicles and you want to be able to do it legally and you want those vehicles to be vehicles that were originally certified by the EPA, you've got to do what the West Virginia case says. You have got to convince Congress that those vehicles are legal to modify and legal to own. And the Borla exhaust case goes into a big analysis, a couple pages at least, of all the attempts that there have been to pass the RPM Act and all of the failures that there have been to pass the RPM Act. And what the case argues is, hey, if this were really a popular position, that we have these race vehicles and you can modify them and you can remove the emissions, get Congress to agree and we'll do it. So that's a bit of a an aside to the, to the West Virginia case, but I think it's much more relevant to our industry than the West Virginia case is. So I thought I'd mention it while we we're on the podcast so people can take a look and they can see how that case might apply to some of the things that they want to do. I'm glad that you did because one of the things I love about our, our conversations <clears throat> is it can unpack these complex things and there's tons of, I don't want to call it disinformation, but I'd say confusion mm -hmm. that resides on a lot of different sides. So when I had seen the ruling on this and I look at social media, you see things like, oh, I can delete my truck now or, oh, um, you know, there's not going to be civil penalties or criminal penalties for making a delete kit or, or doing something like that. So to understand the three different components that were in that ruling and what they said, hey, this is constitutional, the EPA can govern and can do things as it pertains to emissions output, but these other two don't, I think, um, really puts things in perspective. And I wasn't aware of the Borla case that you mentioned. I haven't seen a lot of... Um, talk about it in you know, the circles or you know the diesel community yeah. uh, but most people don't know about it yeah i didn't and i never heard of it well, yeah and most people also don't want to talk about it because it's not great for us yeah but 
there are some silver linings in both these cases. Okay. And one of them in the Borla case I just mentioned is that the Borla case, the EPA has gone on the record as saying they don't really want to go after the owners of the vehicle. Okay. Does that mean that they're going to stick with it? I mean, who knows? Probably not in the long run, but at least for now, they've gone on the record to say, we're not after the racers. We don't intend to take away their race vehicles. What we intend to do is we intend to go after the people who are making money in commerce, selling parts that violate the law. Okay. So that's one silver lining, at least in the Borla case. There's a few others that we can talk about. Um, the the silver lining in the in the West Virginia case doesn't really have to do with our industry. What it has to do with is the idea that the EPA cannot run amok in the United States and make up a bunch of clean power plans or other enforcement strategies that would not be codified and written down and approved by Congress. It, it's a limitation on their ability to do what it is that they want to do, which is to go out there and try to make everyone drive a Tesla. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I, I obviously I'm joking, but not really, you know, I mean, they, they really have a much more, uh, much more idealistic or, or, you know, priority shift. Okay. I've got a great relationship, or at least I think I have a great relationship with most of the people over at the EPA. I find them to be pretty reasonable to deal with. Um, they're not all like that, but most of the people that I deal with the EPA really smart, really good at their jobs and generally pretty reasonable. The one common theme that I see when I deal with people at the EPA is that they really believe that what they're doing is the best for Americans. Period. They think that this pollution from whatever source it's coming from is real major problem for climate change or for the air that we breathe or or whatever. And I don't really take a position on that. I think both sides have good arguments. I think that climate change is real. I don't really think that you can dispute that. I think that the EPA tends to overreach. <laughs> I don't think you can dispute that. I think that both sides have good arguments as to why what they're doing is the right thing to do. And so I don't, I'm not going to hold something against the EPA uh, because they really believe it's the right thing to do. I mean, they work the EPA for a reason. I might disagree with it, but I'm not going to hold it against them. So the West Virginia case limits the authority of the EPA to go out and run amok and do whatever it is that they want. The problem for us is that the legislators back in the 60s or 70s or whenever it was that these tampering laws were created as part of the Clean Air Act, they already they already put it in black and white. You can't take off the emissions. You cannot alter the emissions. There's a million different gray areas in that statute 
that you can argue about what does and doesn't tamper, what does and doesn't defeat, all that stuff. But at the end of the day, if you're removing from the, em the emissions from any vehicle, it doesn't matter if it's a diesel, it doesn't matter if it's a mobile source, you're taking a risk. So, you know, that's what I tell my clients. And I think generally speaking, people have come around to that idea. Most of the real successful movers and shakers that I see in the industry, they don't care about what the Clean Air Act says because they're creating tunes and products that comply with the Clean Air Act and they're making a ton of money doing it. It's not like these, you know, aftermarket is going to go away. So, you know, that's something for everybody to keep in mind, but I don't, I don't blame anyone for being confused about the decision, the West Virginia decision for several reasons, but a couple really important ones. Number one is they're not lawyers and they're not constitutional lawyers. And this is a gigantic document that basically says a lot of different things that most people don't understand. So there's going to be confusion. There's yeah. going to be confusion about it. The other reason is the EPA has been so aggressive in their enforcement efforts that in this industry, we want to see them, you know, we want to see them restricted. We don't want them to continue on this warpath where they can just send a letter to someone get a check in the mail for a hundred grand or 200 grand or 50 grand or whatever it is, and then go on their merry way. Not everybody can afford to hire a lawyer. Not everybody knows what the law says. So the federal government getting into your business and then the Supreme court coming back and saying, you can't do that for whatever reason, it always gives you a little hope that, you know, there's a, there's a check and a balance that is going to be there. So I certainly understand the confusion, but there should be no confusion with your listeners or anyone in the industry that West Virginia is some kind of a silver bullet for, you know, being able to defeat emissions or manufacture defeats or whatever you want to call it. That's what's really helpful. What I, I wanted to do with this episode and the takeaway I have from it is that if, if you want to change something, it has to be done through the legislative and executive branch and it has to be spelled out versus the perception that I got from reading things, which was the Supreme Court, you know, restricted the EPA. It's everybody gets a delete. You don't have to worry about it. And then it kind of transitioned a little bit, which were a lot of our questions into the RPM Act. Um, and I like how you brought up that other case to say, hey, if this is what you want to do or how it needs to be done, it has to go through the legislative and executive side of it first versus um, an agency being able to come in and say, you know, you can't do this or you can't do that. So I think that that uh, does a fantastic job of, of answering those questions. And I think it's helpful for you know, the people out there to know um, just where things stand, because it, like, like you mentioned, with confusion, we just see EPA, you know, ruled against yeah. and, and we think, oh, great, you know, everything's back to normal. But uh, I, I think for the industry, it's incredibly important and hopefully it gets more active politically in that legislative and executive side yeah, to I mean, see those changes. You, yeah, you can see you can you can see for better or worse on on that portion, the legislation portion, the opinions are consistent. You want to be able to modify vehicles 
for race shoes that originally were certified by the EPA, go to Congress. You want to be able to restrict coal emissions and carbon emissions, and you want to stop coal power plants from operating, go to Congress. That's what both judges said. The opinions are vastly different, but that's what both judges said. So, you know, that's a good thing either way. One of the questions, and this might be tough to answer because somebody had asked about, does this set any sort of precedent with an entity like CARB? And I guess it kind of leads back to one of my questions was, is this ruling very specific in that it's pertaining to a power plant and a large energy sector of the economy? Or is it this general, no matter what branch of government it is, if it's an agency, you just can't go outside of what's specifically listed in the law that you're trying to either interpret or enforce? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, there, I can't answer it. There's, you know, a little bit more to unpack there, but I'll, I'll try to do it um, as efficiently as I can. So CARB regulates the state of California and CARB regulates all of the air enforcement and air pollution matters in California. CARB is not only related to or restricted to regulating um, diesel power or coal power or whatever, okay? So the the problem with CARB, or not the problem with CARB, th there's no coal in California. <laughs> so, you know, California has regulations for power plants and stuff like that. Um, they have regulations for diesels. They require you to get an EO, which has kind of been uh, at least adopted or quasi adopted by the EPA is their sort of, you know, baseline requirement. Okay. Right. Baseline is the wrong word. If you get a CARBO, then you are going to be okay on a federal standard because the standards in California are more stringent. Okay. Um, CARB might, and the EPA might give uh, licenses and approvals to power plants or stationary sources such as, uh, you know, um, like drilling rigs um, off the coast, for example. They also give approvals for, for mobile sources. But because there are so many people in the aftermarket and there are so many different companies doing different things in the diesel and gas world in the aftermarket, the EPA has basically said, we can't create a standard to regulate what those guys are doing because there's too many of them. So we're just going to use CARB's standard. And that's where the standard has that's where the standard was that why the EPA adopted that standard. It wasn't because CARB has got this amazing EO process. It was because they've got something. And yeah. the thing that they have is for better or worse, it's pretty thorough. You're not going to be able to really trick it. You're not going to be able to cheat CARB for the most part. Right. So the Clean Air Act, and I've talked about this before on your podcast, the Clean Air Act does not say 
that you have to use carb to get an EO. And it doesn't say that you have to go through carb to sell a part. What it says is you have to have a reasonable basis to believe that that part is not going to increase emissions or pollutants or whatever over a certain threshold. Okay. This is where the impact of using carb versus not using carb and the West Virginia case could actually matter. And that is because the EPA has adopted as its guidance and its internal rule that carb is the gold standard, the carb EO, right? But that's not what the Clean Air Act says. And guess what? There has not been legislation to my knowledge, that says Congress says you've got to get a carbio. Yeah. Right? So if the Clean Air Act doesn't say it, and there hasn't been legislation that says it, then you revert back to your language in the Clean Air Act, which says that you must have a reasonable basis. Okay. There is a tiny little sliver of a window there for companies in the aftermarket to say that they've done testing and the testing has shown that you are not increasing pollutants. Therefore, you have a reasonable basis. And Corey Willis was actually saying something about this on Facebook the other day that I thought was interesting. He said, go with the SEMA testing and not the carb testing because the carb testing is much more expensive and much more onerous. Okay. Um, I don't know. Uh, I, I can't say that I agree or disagree with that. I can only say what the law says. The law says that you have to have a reasonable basis to believe that your parts don't increase emissions, right? The law does not say that you have to use carb to get an EO. So if you go to SEMA and they do the testing and the testing comes back that your parts don't increase pollutants or increase emissions, then why isn't that a reasonable basis? Yeah. Right? Yeah. So to like I said, there's a lot to unpack with your with your listeners' questions related to carb versus the EPA and an EO versus testing. But the West Virginia case is a, is applicable there in the sense that Congress has not said that in order to sell a part in the aftermarket, you have to get a CARBEO. They've not said that. There's not been legislation. There's not a bill. There's not a law in the books that says you have to do that, except in California, right? Yep. So- it's reviving this idea that there can be something that's 49 state legal, but you just have to make sure that you actually have testing to give to the EPA to demonstrate that you're not completely full of, you know, what. That makes complete sense. And I think that that, uh, that helps put this all in perspective and, and I appreciate your time today being able to tie in, you know, something that's incredibly complex, like a Supreme Court decision in 90 pages to 
you know, what a shop owner, a manufacturer, a truck owner is thinking about as it pertains to their passion, their livelihood, um, or something that they drive every day. So I think that definitely provided some clarity on it. And I am going to do some more research on that other case because I think that <clears throat> that's something that hits a little bit closer to home for all of the people in the diesel industry yeah. is how it ties into the RPM Act and that race vehicle. What is it? How can I build one? what doesn't qualify, which I know is a huge topic. So I, I do appreciate I'll, you mentioning that. I'll send it to you so you don't have to research too much, um, or at least you don't have to try to find it. Um, yeah. I'll be happy to send it to you and you can post it on your website if you want for your listeners to, you know, pull off of there. Um, and then, you know, like I said, if you want to talk more about that case, uh, then we can, I'm happy to get on a podcast anytime, as I've told you before, um, I always like to chat with you, but um, I do think that that case is more applicable to our industry. I do think it's possible it could go on appeal. I haven't seen anything about that, so I don't know. Um, but that's good law. The The Borla case is good law. And really, the biggest takeaway that I see in there is that all these arguments that we've been making, we meaning our industry has been making about what parts are legal, what parts aren't legal, what you can do, what you can't do. All those arguments are addressed in this ruling. What is what what does a waiver mean? Right? Right. How many parts can you sell for them to be a race part versus a on-road use part? What is the impact of legislation related to uh EPA certified vehicle? It's all in there. It is a full summary of all the arguments we've been making for the last 10 years. So it would be something I'd be happy to talk to you about if you want to have me back. Um, if you uh, don't understand a part of it, um, then you can email me and, and I can sort of point you in the right direction. But I do think that that's, that case is more important for our industry than the West Virginia case. I'm just hoping that People don't get the wrong idea about the EPA losing a case in the Supreme Court because it doesn't always mean that the EPA is just going to go away and you can delete whatever vehicle you want. And we're all going to have a coal power plant in our front, front yard because regardless of how you feel about the government, um, I don't think we like dirty air. <laughs> right. Right. No, it's, it, this was incredibly helpful. And like I said, uh, as always, I, I appreciate your time. We'll definitely have to sit back again and, uh, and chat because it affects you know, all of us, uh, ourselves, the companies we know, um, you know, what you're working on on a, day, on a daily basis. So it was a, a pleasure again to chat with you, Stuart. Look forward to doing it again. Okay. Thanks, Patrick, for having me on. And uh, I look forward to talking to you again soon. Don't forget, diesel fans, make sure and head on over to kershaw.kiausa.com. Use code diesel20 for 20% off site-wide. So no matter what you're looking at on their site, you save 20%, whether it's for you know, something for hunting, fishing, the outdoors, everyday carry, everything in between, they've got it for you. Also want to give a special shout out to some of our Patreon supporters, Texas Diesel Supply, Wrights Diesel Services, Caleb and Tyler Lowen of 23 Diesel. We appreciate their support, all of our Patreons, all of you who subscribe on YouTube, all the podcast apps, Instagram, Facebook. You guys keep us going, keep us inspired. We love the recommendations that you guys have for shows, for guests and topics that you want to hear about. So keep them coming. Until next time, keep the shiny side up.